and then we're going on to lead another retreat in Australia. Because our teacher, Deepama, was still alive but was quite elderly, living in Calcutta, we decided to visit her and to stop in Calcutta between Sweden and Australia. This brought us to Calcutta in the middle of the rainy season. I had never actually been in Calcutta in the middle of the rainy season. It was this phenomenal monsoon, just pouring torrents, sheets and sheets and sheets of rain. And We went up to visit Deepama in her apartment, had a wonderful afternoon with her, quite ignoring the fact that the whole time we were there, it was raining and raining and raining and raining. So then at the end of the the time together at, at dusk, when we left the apartment, we walked outside, I discovered what happens in a poor area of Calcutta, like the one she lived in, in the middle of monsoon season, which is that when the sheets of rain come down heavily enough, the sewers overflow. So we walked outside, and there was several feet of sewage to wade through. (laughs) And uh, taxis weren't running, cars couldn't run. So we were going to have to walk back to our hotel. And I can remember standing there up on the curb, and Joseph said something like, well, this should be very interesting. And... (laughs) And I said, yeah, if you're six foot three, this is going to be interesting, but I don't know if it's going to be that interesting for me. And, you know, we, we stepped off the curb, and sure enough, it was absolutely hideous. It was just, it was horrible. There were rats. It was just every sense door was assaulted in the most unpleasant possible way. We walked for some distance, and then um, got back to our hotel. And just a few days later, we were in Australia. We were in Sydney, and a friend took us to the Sydney Opera House to hear a symphony. And here's the Sydney Opera House, which is this architectural marvel in the harbor of Sydney, a very beautiful site. And we're sitting there, and everyone is all dressed up, and everything smells really nice, and we're listening to the strains of Dvorak and Brahms, and I'm sitting there in all of this lovely experience thinking, what happened to Calcutta? You know, that was just a few days ago. And just before we went to the opera house, this friend took us out to dinner, one of those restaurants um, that revolves slowly around so you can get a view, the panoramic view of the the city. And um, it was a, a beautiful meal that was really beautifully served, and everything was just all pleasant. And the next time that um, I had a meal with this particular Australian friend, we happened to be together in Burma practicing, and the food there is served family style. And as I'm sure we've mentioned before, all of the food that you eat is an offering to you. And so while everybody certainly gives absolutely the best that they can possibly afford to give because it's a very poor country. Sometimes that isn't very much. And so the uh, quality of the meals was, was very variable. And I remember this particular meal where the, the main course was some kind of pulpy vegetables. Like when you chewed it, it, it turned into this 
ball of wooden pulp in your mouth, and, and it was swimming in oil, as the food often was. And there was my Australian friend offering me the bowl to see if I wanted seconds, and I thought, what happened to that restaurant? <laughs> you know, that lovely restaurant with the sweeping views of the city and all of that beautiful food and so elegantly served. But life is like that, isn't it? You know, in, in six months or two weeks or a day, an hour even, we can experience so many ups and downs, so many times of pleasure and pain. So that the question becomes, how can a human being with a human heart not just endure and somehow sustain throughout all of these changes of conditions, but, but actually flourish and be free in the face of all of these changing conditions. Because certainly it's easy, and we all know that, for the heart to become quite brittle and rigid and resentful. We get what we want, and we're sitting in a nice restaurant, and everything is, is really nice, and we close off to any other possibility. We don't want to see other people who are having difficulty because it reminds us of our own vulnerability. We don't, don't want to admit our vulnerability. And so we clamp down and hold on tight to the experience as though we're going to succeed at that. And when things are difficult, we imagine this is the only way that things will ever be. We project into an endless and seemingly terrible future, but really we don't know. Just as we've mentioned before, when the Buddha described existence, he described our lives, he talked about the eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And he said, this is life. This is the very fabric of life. It's like if you make the mental shift from saying life is changing to say, saying life is change. This is what life is made up of, is pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute for everybody. There is nobody in this world who has only pleasure and no pain, only praise and no blame. Everybody's life is this continually fluctuating movement throughout all of these different states. When some friends and I were um, walking in this state park in California, and we decided we were going to hike in for three days, and then on the fourth day we were going to turn around and retrace our steps and come out in exactly the same path we'd followed in. So on the third day, still going in, it turned out to be a day of many, many hours of very steady, unremitting downhill walking. And the person I was walking with, it's like he and I at one point were almost struck by the simultaneous realization, and we both just stopped and looked at each other and said, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. <laughs> you know. And sure enough, the next day when we turned around to retrace our steps, it was many, many, many hours of constant, unremitting uphill walking. On a certain level, not perhaps on all levels, but on a certain level, it is a dualistic universe with gradations of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, uphill and downhill. That's just the way it is. It's that way for everybody. And the 
the goal of spiritual life is not to flatten it out because it's not going to happen. Rather to to have a big enough mind and heart and a resilient enough mind and heart to be able to be aware with equanimity, with loving kindness, with compassion of all of the different states that meet us. For everybody, there are all of these changes. The story I like from the time of the Buddha has to do with praise and blame, where he, some man once came to one of the monasteries of the Buddha to learn something about what the Buddha had been teaching. And the first monk he came upon, they say, was a monk who had taken a temporary vow of silence. So when this man said, will you teach me something of what the Buddha is talking about? The monk didn't respond at all. He didn't say anything. And the man became furious, and he stomped away. The same man came back a second day, came upon another disciple of the Buddha's who was very learned, not only in not only deep and um, profoundly experienced in practice, but he was very learned in the theory of Buddhism. So when he was asked, can you please tell me something of what the Buddha's teaching, it said that he launched into a very elaborate and theoretical discourse, and the man became furious, and he stomped away. So the same man came back a third day, and he came upon a third disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Ananda. And Ananda, having heard what happened on the first day, and having heard what happened on the second day, it said that when he was asked, he was careful to say something, but not too much. And the man became really angry. He said something like, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. So this group of people came up to the Buddha, and they said, Oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And the Buddha said, There's always blame in this world. He said, If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. And that doesn't mean that we don't absorb that fact and that we don't care and that we don't listen and that we don't try and that we don't feel hurt. But how hurt do we get? When we see that here are the winds of change completely outside of our control, it comes home maybe most strikingly when the very same action brings praise from some people and blame from others. And I was thinking when I first uh, came in the hall and I um, kind of bowed to the Buddha, I was thinking about uh, the very first time a teacher here, as far as I know, a Western teacher here, did that. Most of us were trained in meditation in Asian countries like Burma, where a Buddha is not an art object, a Buddha is a sacred image. And so when you see the Buddha, you bow to the Buddha. It's not obsequious, it's really a gesture of bowing to that potential in every human being, including yourself. But that's the, the common cultural mode of paying respects. And so you just do that. And we never did it here. You know, it's kind of odd and easily misunderstood. And, but then one day, one teacher did. He just decided, well, you know, it feels right to me. It's part of my own practice, so I'm going to do it. So he came and bowed to the Buddha, led the sitting, rang the bell, 
By the time he got to the bulletin board, there were notes up there for him. <laughs> That's not very far. <laughs> you know, and all the yogis move kind of slowly. So you think someone, you know, people made a dash out of here so that they could put some notes up to express their feelings. And, uh, you know, he pulled off one note from the bulletin board and it said something like, I was so happy to see you bow to the Buddha because I myself have a strongly devotional nature and it meant so much to me to see that you can express that kind of um, emotion here. And the next note he pulled off the board said something like, I was appalled to see you bow to the Buddha. You know, those kind of customs don't have any place here in the West. Why are you bringing over this this Asian custom, and it was like, what, 30 seconds, you know, between here and there, and already praise and blame. It's just the way it is. Equanimity as a response to that is simply the, it's the voice of wisdom. It doesn't mean we don't want praise and we don't notice blame and that it doesn't feel different. Of course it feels different. But we can have some sense of being centered and a great deal of realization of this is how things are. We have to act from the best intention or motivation that can guide us. We have to act as skillfully as we can. And past that, we will never be able to control how everybody responds to what we do. Equanimity is a spacious understanding with the emphasis on understanding. Equanimity really is the voice of wisdom. It's not complacency, it's not passivity, and it's not indifference, which are, especially indifference, are more states of kind of withdrawing our energy from something. It's almost, sometimes it's almost a subtle form of hostility or aversion, being that closed off. With equanimity, we are very fully present. We are completely engaged with what's happening. But the wisdom is is guiding our response, that we're not in control of the unfolding of events, that downhill and uphill tend to be intertwined, that there's praise and blame in this world, that we have to act from the best intention that we can, and then we need to learn to let go. Otherwise, we will be continually hurt. Equanimity is really balance. It's peace of mind. I often tell the story. I may even have told it here in this course. My brain is not (laughs) totally what it once was. (laughs) Um, About after my my first book, Loving Kindness, came out, and I was out in California... And somebody, uh, I did tell it here. Okay, we won't tell it again. <laughs> I'll tell you another story. But when my first book came out, um, I, got, I got a review uh, in a journal. It was the first major review of the book. And it was a very, very, very positive review, except for one line. And even the line, the one line, was confusing. It was hard to know exactly what the, the comment, which included the word lackluster, was referring to. <laughs> it was hard to know if it was referring to the, 
um, book, except for the certain parts that were being praised, or, as I hoped, it was actually not referring to the book, but it was referring to the ordinary presentation of the Buddhist teachings. And so it was, it was quite confusing, um, even within the line, but nonetheless, of all the many, many words that were in the review, the one word my eye kept returning to was lackluster. <laughs> and there, embedded in what was extremely positive and um, very movingly so, very positive, the, all the other things they said, was that one line. And if anybody said to me, you know, I, I read that review, my stomach would just clench, and I think, oh no. And everybody here, of course, was teasing me all the time. They would call it the L word. <laughs> and this was a long time ago. This was um, when uh, Bob Dole was running for president, and uh, somebody said to me, well, you and he have something in common now. <laughs> And I said, what? And they said, well, they called him lackluster, too. (laughs) So, I would hesitate to paint a picture of somebody who doesn't notice (laughs) that kind of thing. You know, we notice, and we we do have to have a big enough mind. Equanimity is wisdom. Otherwise, You know, we have an image of what we're supposed to become in the context of our spiritual life, our meditative life. And it's it's both a difficult image to live up to because it's not going to happen. You know, that there will be no feelings, there will be no caring, there will be no response, there will be no acknowledgement of preference, there will be no pleasure, there will be no pain. And it also creates a very unfortunate um, paradigm of what we're, we're making an effort to grow to. Equanimity, in that wider scope of all the changes of our life, is developed through various things, including having equanimity through all the changes that happen in a smaller scope, which is a meditation session. As you're coming closer, very close, to having to leave the retreat, it's really important to understand this because I think, and I've said to all of those of you who I work with, I think the best thing about a retreat this length is that you get to go through so many ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And maybe you come in here thinking, well, it's going to be hard in the beginning, but then I'm going to hit that moment. And then from then on, it's just going to be sailing free and everything is going to be so delightful. But I worry about people like that, you know. (laughs) I do. And both, it's not likely to happen. But even if it were to happen, then I think it's a problem because... Then you leave with a concept of what good meditation is supposed to look like. And and that usually is serene or blissful or pleasant or exalted or having no thoughts or 
being filled with bliss or something like that. All of those are wonderful, but they don't last. And so it's not just a theoretical problem that people leave a retreat and they struggle and they strive and they strain to get back that state, that wonderful state that they are defining as the single example of good meditation. Rather than understanding that the power of mind of equanimity, of being able to go through all of those different changes is more important because the changes are not going to stop. The very common scenario when people leave a retreat and are attempting to sit at home is that you will have a certain amount of concentration, believe it or not, (laughs) from having done the retreat, and then you will feel the momentum of that for some time so that when you sit, you'll be able to see thoughts quickly and your body may feel light and at ease and everything is kind of nice. And you think, oh, great. You know, I'm going to sit maybe all weekend or, you know... um, I'm going to do a retreat as soon as I can, you know. I wish I didn't have, I wish I had more than an hour, you know. It's, it's going to be all of that. And then one day, the concentration's not going to be there because conditions will just have shifted in some fashion. And you will sit and your mind will be full of thoughts and they will be unpleasant thoughts or trivial thoughts. And your body will hurt in some way. You'll be bored, you'll be restless, you'll be sleepy. Maybe all of that. And then you think, I'm not doing it right. Or, this doesn't work if you only can devote an hour a day to it. What, really what I'm going to do is, I'll just give up now. Because, you know, you can't really meditate and get anywhere if you have to go to work on the same day. And... <laughs> I will sit all weekend, you know. I'll shut off the phone and I'll sit all weekend and then maybe you do that, actually. Maybe you don't. But even if you do, maybe the conditions still aren't coming together for the concentration to be very strong. And it's still kind of that, that difficult experience, that difficult kind of experience. And then you think, well, you know, maybe this doesn't work outside of retreat. You know, this isn't really a practice that that you can take with you into life. Or, or maybe you think, I can't do it. You know, I had my days of glory, and, you know, when I was on retreat, and, um, you know, it was really the group. It was the peer support. And, you know, on my own, I'm not capable of, of practicing meditation. I should just give up. And it's maybe the most common kind of gyration of the mind. And we all go through it. I went through it very clearly when I was living in India back in the early 70s. I wasn't always on intensive retreat by any means. But like everyone, I was trying to have a daily sitting practice. And those times when I wasn't on intensive retreat, I struggled in just that way. When things felt really good, I think, well, great. I'm going to stay here in India for the entire rest of my life because my meditation practice is going so well and I just have to keep it going. And On days when things were very difficult and I was sleepy or restless or bored or whatever, I would think, 
can't do it. And I'd just get up. I would feel discouraged and hopeless and overcome, and I'd just give up. So I finally went to one of my teachers, Manindra, and described my, my dance through, through all these different reactions. And he said, for you, I have one piece of advice. So I said, what's that? And he said, just put your body there. He said, that's your job. He said, every day, just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel one way. Other days it's going to feel another way. You just have to create the space to experience it with a greater awareness. That is actually more important than having a certain kind of experience. Because really, things are a little bit mysterious as we practice. We don't always know what's significant, what's kind of enjoyable but not that profound, what's painful but very important. We just have to do it. One of my um, other teachers once described meditation practice using this image. He said it's like taking a piece of wood and trying to split it with an axe. He said you hit it 99 times and nothing happens. You hit it the 100th and it breaks open. When we do that, you know, it doesn't feel very good. Number 28, number 29, number 30, nothing's happening. When we hit it the hundredth time and it breaks open, very often we then do a kind of analysis. Like, what did I do differently this time that I didn't do the other times? Was I standing differently? Was I holding the axe differently? But it wasn't any of that. It's really that every single one of those blows weakened the fiber of the wood so that in the end it could split open. And even more than that, we can we can change that image to understand that it's not even just the mechanical act of weakening the fiber of the wood, but the fact that we kept going. That's the transformation. Like what happens inside of us with number 28, number 29, number 30, as we are developing patience and open-heartedness and good humor and, and courage and conviction and all of that, that's what's transforming. That's the opening, not in, in the breakthrough that happens when when the wood splits open. The development of the power of equanimity is more important than any particular experience. In uh, one of the suttas, the Mangala Sutta, where the Buddha is talking about these different blessings, different levels of blessing in one's life, you know, he starts by saying things like, having a good family life is a great blessing, and having a craft, a livelihood that you enjoy, and that uh, can help people is a great blessing. And he goes through these different gradations of blessing in what is actually a hierarchy. And then he talks about nibbana or, or liberation, the experience of liberation being a great blessing. And higher than that is equanimity in face of the winds of change. They're not unconnected, but... That is actually the, the nature of life, that there will be pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. And people used to revile the Buddha at times. And there are all these stories of not only his cousin trying to kill him, but people complaining about him and spreading lies about him and being malicious about him and 
And of course, the life of a mendicant is very, it's very transparent in a way because you go out every single day for food. And so you're continually in a mode of receiving. And sometimes you receive these lavish feasts and sometimes you receive very poor amounts. Sometimes you receive nothing. And uh, here was the Buddha going out for alms food every day. And sometimes he was like every other monk. Sometimes he would receive great bounty and sometimes he would not. And sometimes people would, would praise him and sometimes they would blame him. So you think, well, if it happened to him, you know, it's not going to stop. It's actually just the way things are. But equanimity is a great power, actually, because what it is is, is the force of perspective. In some Tibetan traditions, they talk about ways to look at your thoughts, ways to approach your thoughts, and they say, you should look at the thoughts that go through your mind as though you were a very old person sitting in a park watching children play. Which I found to be a lovely image. You know, it wasn't like you should be condescending and belittling, but if you imagine that, you know, the kind of tenderness and yet sort of amusement, you know, as children fight or they grab one another's toys or something like that, and you think, oh yeah, you know. It's really... It's a question of perspective. If you can feel your way into that kind of tenderness and amusement and awareness. You know, when a two-year-old is told, I'm going away for a day, it might well feel like forever. When an adult is told I'm going away for a day, it doesn't, doesn't seem that long. From a certain perspective, very likely a lifetime doesn't seem that long. Everything depends on the nature of our perspective. And equanimity is creating as much space and having as big an awareness as you possibly can based on wisdom. It's like the, the development from being a two-year-old to being an adult is one of learning and understanding as well so that we are, in fact, seeing things more clearly. That's how we have equanimity, because we say, you know, I don't really know. This is how things seem right now. I don't know how one thing will lead to the next. I don't know what this will unfold into. Maybe this is hitting the wood, number you know, 38, 39. If I keep going, I don't know what will happen. Let me discover. It's based on, on that kind of sensibility. And just as we develop equanimity in that way through observing the changing states of meditation or the changing states of life, so too there is the equanimity practice, which is its own practice. When I was in Burma doing these intensively and you know, I got to equanimity, I thought, what's this? You know, <laughs> What happened to all those glorious feelings of, of metta and 
compassion and so on. But after a while, it became just the, the biggest relief to have a sense of cultivating peace in the face of all different relationships. To have equanimity, which is not indifferent, but balance, seeing others who are happy, is really, in a way, is the very basis for being able to have sympathetic joy, not to feel so bereft or threatened. To have equanimity in the face of others who are suffering is the basis of being able to have compassion. The phrases that are used classically are difficult for a lot of people. It's hard to understand what karma means. It's hard to understand um, that that's not a kind of cold dismissal, like, well, you know, that's your problem. You created it. It's very, very hard to understand. Sometimes the one has a, a kind of instinctive okayness with those phrases, sometimes not. And if not, there are many phrases that can be used, anything really that that works for you. But the idea is to establish with others that same spaciousness that we are establishing with our own experience through mindfulness. It's that much awareness and connection and balance to see, well, yeah, things unfold as they do. That we can and must really try to to help and to give and, and to come forward And at the same time, we are not in control of the unfolding of the universe. Sometimes people will not get better. And they will not necessarily in any way get better according to our own demand. Equanimity doesn't mean we're shutting them off. It means that we're finding the way to be present for them no matter what, even if they don't satisfy us based on wisdom, that we're not in control in the end. That we have to accept that things are the way that they are. And also accept the element of mystery in that. That we see just a a glimpse of a bigger picture, but we can have a sense that there is a bigger picture, in fact. And that our part may be that heartfelt effort to help or to share, or to offer metta, or something like that. And we just don't know where it's all going to go. We don't really have a clue. One of the fun things that we have here that you don't get to see is um, in the staff dining room, we have a set of baby pictures of all of us. Um, Those of us, especially who were here for the first five years, um, and then staff people in and teachers who came afterwards, we have um, these different albums. But I don't know who started it, actually, in the first five years, but we all just kind of came here. We were living here. We had nowhere else to live, so I guess we brought our baby pictures with us. um, So up on the board, there they are. And what's really funny is that most people haven't changed very much either, you know? (laughs) It's just there's some characteristic that you can spot, and you think, oh, yeah, you know, that's still there. But sometimes I stand in front of that and I I look at it and I contemplate, how did this bunch of people come together? Isn't that funny? You know, that 
all these different places we were born and grew up and different circumstances and conditions and it just happened. It came together. Once in one particular period here, uh, as the pictures kept going up on the board, we discovered that uh, we were just talking about our backgrounds and histories and so on, and we discovered that um, one staff person had been a, a radical in the 60s in Berkeley and had done all these protests and uh, led student riots and things like that. Another staff person had been a policeman in Berkeley at the same time. And we wondered if they'd ever actually encountered each other in some unfortunate way. We think about all those strands of life changes and immense flows. It's really a mystery. There's some bigger pattern, some bigger picture that we can perhaps not know, but we can, we can glimpse, we can have faith in, we can trust. So that our reaction to every particular part of it doesn't have to be so extreme. We can relax some and say, well, let's see where this goes. That's the kind of understanding that helps us develop equanimity. You know, when I was in Buffalo, way back when, and I heard about this program where you could go overseas, you'd go abroad for a year into another culture, or another culture within this country, but most likely abroad, and and apply to get a year's worth of independent study credit for that, depending on the proposal you put forth, what you wanted to study. The first proposal I put forth was to go to New Zealand. For some reason, I, I decided I wanted to go to New Zealand, and they rejected that. So then I thought, well, you know what I really want to do much more deeply? I want to go to India and study Buddhism. So I wrote another proposal, submitted it, and accepted it, and off I went. In my very first retreat, when I met Joseph, I found out that uh, as he's probably said, he got interested in Buddhism when he was in the Peace Corps. And when he applied to go to the Peace Corps, he asked to be sent to East Africa, and they sent him to Thailand instead. And Thailand, of course, is a Buddhist country, and, and it was in Bangkok that he first learned to meditate. He first learned about Buddhism. And so sometimes we talk and we think, well, you know, if I'd gone to New Zealand and you'd gone to East Africa, what would IMS be, <laughs> you know? There's so much of that sense of needing to see how things are, accept how things are, not, not to be defeated by it, but to see what might unfold next, to see what the next nuance might be, the next change, the next, next interaction. That's the, the feeling tone of equanimity. It's like having an adventure all of the time instead of being bound to our conclusions of how people should be, how they should behave, how powerful we should be, how life should unfold. It's the kind of feeling you know, that we describe sometimes when we were uh, living in Asia and things were an adventure. There was, there was such tremendous excitement of discovery and discovery of the Dharma and of deeper levels within ourselves and 
there was an openness of heart that allowed us to accept many very difficult conditions. You know, if you talk about it in terms of how it is, you know, and all the stories that we tell, it's like so noisy and so dirty and um, the food's so bad and, you know, it's like balls of wooden pulp. And <laughs> People often say, why'd you go, you know? But it's a very powerful experience to, to have your life have that, that sense of adventure. When we first came here to Barry, one of the early staff people was somebody who had spent years with us in India. And we were trying to get to know the people in the neighborhood. So we had a, we got together with some of the doctors in the clinic. And um, she was talking about this time in New Delhi. We got to talking about the weather. And she was talking about how incredibly hot it was in certain seasons in New Delhi and how uh, it was maybe 105 degrees. And she was suffering from the heat because she had to go around from visa office to visa office trying to extend her visa. And, and she said it was a particularly difficult time for her because she was also feeling very sick and weak because she'd had like, worms and amoebic dysentery and hepatitis. And I remember this doctor looking at her completely aghast, and he said, you were trying to extend your visa? <laughs> he said, what were you doing, holding out for leprosy? You know? But there was something, there was some inner spirit so that all of those adverse conditions, they didn't matter so much. You know, to have that kind of equanimity doesn't mean that you don't try to take care of yourself, you know, and that you don't go to the doctor and that, and that you just say, well, sickness and health, it's all one, you know. But to be able to, to open beyond the immediate circumstance, to recognize that's a part of things and maybe not all of the story. That's the force of it. We do that with the circumstances of our life and we do that with people. To know that we may not be able to intervene in this given moment to make everything okay. But we can be present. We can have a sense of a bigger picture. We can do what we can right now and then let go. It doesn't mean that we don't care. We do care. We should care. But beyond what we can do, we need to let go. We need to have some sense of balance, just like we have to with our own, our own difficulty. This is from the Chinese tradition's poem, which says, 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. And even that, it's not just for us. To have that kind of peace or balance or sense of adventure or openness, which is not based on conditions, is an extraordinary thing in this world. And it reminds us, like when we see it in others, it reminds us of a sense of possibility that is way beyond what we normally experience. One of my favorite Dalai Lama stories is about this time when uh, he was teaching in, in Arizona, and um, he would 
the way he was teaching was he was lecturing in the morning and in the afternoon, and then they invited different Western teachers to teach in the evening. And I actually, Sylvia Borstein and I were the very first night. And I was very nervous. It was um, about 1,200 people, which at that time were, was the largest crowd I'd ever spoken to. And uh, he wasn't there, fortunately, but I was sitting right in front of his throne. And it was very intimidating. And uh, but we got through it, and it was done, and I was immensely relieved that it was done. And then I thought, well, this is great, because you know, we're the very first night. Now I can just enjoy the rest of the conference. And a few days later, the Dalai Lama was teaching, and um, what he was doing was he was reading from a text with a little bit of commentary, and then as that was being translated, he would flip ahead in the text to look over the passage he was just about to read. And he did that, as was his custom, and something happened when the translator was translating so that he looked up and he said, that's not what I said. The translator said, yes, it was. And he said, no, it wasn't. And they they got into this debate with each other. And it wasn't over anything too substantive. It was some relatively minor thing, like did he say that to her or did she say that to him or, you know. But they were really kind of going at it (laughs) with each other. And then finally the Dalai Lama flipped back through the pages to get to the the disputed passage, and he burst out into this hysterical laughter, and he said, oh, ha, 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 I made a mistake. (laughs) And I thought, look at that. (laughs) You know, if I had made a mistake in front of those 1,200 people, would I have laughed? Probably not. And would I have admitted it? Probably not. But there was something about him where he said, yeah, I made a mistake. Isn't that funny? (laughs) You know? Rather than projecting this image that he was somehow striving to attain, it's actually a powerful lesson because of the the degree of openness of that. My very favorite story from uh, the history of Buddhism has to do with the story of the Emperor Ashoka, who was an emperor in northern India about 250 years after the time of the Buddha. In his early career, Ashoka was said to have been very bloodthirsty and greedy and would often instigate battles to gain new territory, conquer new lands. And it's also said he was a very unhappy man. One day, he ordered a battle that was said to be particularly terrible with a tremendous amount of loss. And the morning after the battle, he was walking along the territory and was struck by what an awful thing had been created by the force of his own greed and how much had been destroyed. And said that just at that time, a Buddhist monk came walking by through the battlefield, looking very serene. He walked right by the emperor, who was quite miserable, and without saying a word, something about this monk struck the emperor, and and he thought, well, how is it that I, who am an emperor, I have everything in the material world anybody could want, and I'm so unhappy. And here's this monk who's got nothing, All that he owns is the begging bowl he's carrying and the robes that he's wearing. And he seems much happier than I. And Ashoka was so confused by that that he followed after the monk, it said, and caught up to him and asked him that. Why is it that you seem so so peaceful? And the monk at that point taught him something of the Buddhist teaching. And this was a profound change for Emperor Ashoka. He became... Uh, a Buddhist, in effect. He, he became a very just ruler. 
He built hospitals and planted trees and fed his people instead of waging war. He practiced meditation quite diligently. In fact, he's famous for erecting these pillars throughout northern India, which are like uh, for pilgrims who are going from place to place. They would come upon a pillar, like the birthplace of the Buddha and so on. There are all these pillars, and they have sayings on them that said things like, my favorite was, the first couple of years my meditation practice was very difficult, but then it got a lot better, so persevere. And Emperor Ashoka had both a son and a daughter who were ordained in the Buddhist tradition, who took the teachings of the Buddha from India to Sri Lanka, helped transplant them in Sri Lanka, and from Sri Lanka they spread throughout the rest of Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, throughout Northern Asia, and then throughout the entire world. I really love that story because I think of that moment when the monk walked by not saying a word, but so peaceful in a profound place in his being. Obviously, it wasn't an ordinary kind of happiness. I mean, who's happy walking across a battlefield? But it was some very deep place of peace. It was so deep and it was so unusual that his happiness actually changed the course of history because Ashoka went through the experience he did. His son and daughter did bring out the teachings from India because they did that. We're sitting here in Barry, Massachusetts, you know, more than 2,000 years later with these teachings accessible. The happiness of that monk actually changed the course of history because it was that radical a happiness. It can be a very profound thing to be peaceful because it's not an act of stupidity. It's an expression of the greatest wisdom. And when that is what it is, then it can be very impactful. That story has always meant something to me about not only all the debts that we owe, the debts of gratitude to others, but about what we can become and how important it is. Because, in fact, every one of us can be like that monk. Not impervious and cut off to suffering, our own or others, but open and present and balanced. Witnessing that can be one of the most unusual and one of the most important things that we can ever see. And so as a a manifestation of our being, it can be one of the most important things that we ever give. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.